The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Uh, Personally, this has been such an impactful time for my own life. And I really do believe that it's been impactful for our church's life, too. This book has been a kind of a, a surprise, um, I think. We didn't know what to expect with Amos. And God's word has just met us right where we were, right where we are. And um, very grateful for that. And this morning, man, is the absolute perfect conclusion to a book. And I know you shouldn't be surprised by that because this is God's word and everything, but this is a really incredible conclusion, not only to a book, but for our time together in this book. And so I'm excited for this morning. It's going to be a full morning. Buckle up. Um, I want to take five minutes just very quickly to kind of set the stage for where we are in Amos. And it's going to be less than five minutes. All right. Do you believe that? Nope. Um, less than five minutes. So first of all, Amos, the prophet, was, was an unlikely choice. What I mean by this is he was not high-ranking. He was not uh, influential. In fact, he wasn't polished. He wasn't any of that. He was a lowly, grimy shepherd. Unlikely. Not only was he unlikely, he was also an outsider, which made him even more unlikely. He wasn't even from here. He's from the small town. Actually, he was from a small suburb of a small town in a southern kingdom. And yet, this unlikely outsider prophet was God's chosen man and mouthpiece to deliver a really difficult message to the people of God in this time. Not only that, though, um, we saw as we started into Amos so long ago, if you can believe it, um, that the book of Amos starts a bit like a, ch- uh, a father disciplining his kids. And so what we saw in, in the, the opening portion of, of Amos is Amos starts off by getting on their, good, on their good side. He starts off by, I mean, calling out every one of their neighbors. So you have Israel here, and he just like goes around, just banging them, Right? calling them out for their sin. I mean, he, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and then Judah, even. I mean, he's just, and then all of a sudden, he just kind of squeezes in. Uh-oh. And he lands on, he gets to Israel. And oh, does he get to Israel. Um, and what we talked about is it's a bit like, the tone was a bit like a father disciplining his kids, where a father calling his son to him and saying, son, 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 I see what your brothers are doing. I see what your friends are doing. I'm going to take care of that. I see them. I got them, right? He, he talks to the neighbors and he says, I got them. I'm going to take care of it. But then when we saw in Amos is this turn where the father then looks directly to the son and says, but son, right now, let's talk about you. And for chapter after chapter, God talks to them, speaks to them directly. And... Um, unpacks their wickedness as a people. 
They were comfortable in their sin luxury. They were secure in their cities. They had big mansions. They had wealth. They had their power. But more than that, they were also comfortable in their thinking that, that nah, we're fine. We're good. Like, we're, we got this. We're, we're good. We'll be fine. And God repeatedly says in Amos, in my words, you're not fine. You're not fine. You are wicked. You trample on the vulnerable. You trample on the poor. You're idolatrous. You, you cheat. You lie. You abuse to get ahead. You, you don't love people and use money. You love your money and you use people. You are evil. You are wicked. You're not fine. You're not fine. And here, the people of God, people of Israel, are marked out for their injustice in chapter after chapter after chapter. God unpacks this. I think that was less than five minutes. I think I did it. Uh, and that gets us to this really powerful conclusion. And in this conclusion, there are three big points. That's all I'm going to hit this morning. Three big points from this conclusion. We're going to take them one by one. Three big points, one by one. And the first one is going to come out of the first six verses. So if you would, um, if you would look with me at Amos 9, 1 through 6, Okay. And I'm just going to read this, and then we'll, we'll get started with the first thing. It says, I saw the Lord standing before the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And on those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Mount Carmel, from there I will search them and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. If they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. Verse 5, the Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heaven, who founds his vault upon the earth, who calls from the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. We're going to pause here. First point in this conclusion of Amos is a point that has been made throughout and again and again and again. If you're a student and you're writing a paper, this is what you're supposed to do, right? The conclusion restates what you've been saying this whole time. Amos nails it. He knows his, his uh, literature, his grammar, um, and so here he makes this statement, restates it, and it's simple. There will be judgment. Point number one, there will be judgment. Um, God will judge all mankind in perfect justice and righteousness. This is an all-encompassing judgment on the wickedness and the sin and all of the injustice and one of the most striking things about this text is no, no one will hide. No one will get away. No one. There's nowhere to go. It's almost the inverse 
of one of my favorite psalms. You know uh, Psalm 139 that says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. In that, it's a praise. And, and listen, um, that's great news for a child of God. It's great news that um, a child of God takes comfort in the nearness of our loving heavenly father that there's no one, nowhere that we can go to separate us from him. That's really good news for those who are his. Praise the Lord for that. However, it's not such great news. It's not such great news for those who are looking to get away with something. Right? It's not such great news for those who are trying to hide, to avoid, trying for God not to call everything into account. For those who want to just can I just keep on sinning for just a little bit longer? The nearness of God is not great news for that person. It's horrible news because there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to escape. Amos says, if they dig, I'm there. If they climb, I'm there. If they hide, I'm there. If they even get taken to an enemy land, guess what? I'm there. I'm there. The point is clear. Hide and seek with God is a horrible idea. <laughs> he is there. He is present. He is near, no matter where we try to flee. Right. He is there. There's nowhere to escape. It reminds me of um, a criminal who knows they're guilty, and in order to es- try to escape punishment, they flee the country, right? Um, I say right like I know what that is. I haven't done this. Um, <laughs> but that's what all the movies tell me, right? Um, You try to flee country. Why is that? Well, you're trying to get out of the jurisdiction. You're trying to get out of the jurisdiction. Listen, God is not like that. God is not like that. There's nowhere to go. You can go high. You can go low. He's there. You You can go anywhere in your country and anywhere in any other country and he is there. His jurisdiction knows no boundaries because his jurisdiction is all of creation. That's what's on display in this text. Where can you go? Where can we hide? He hones in on the perfect power of God and as the perfect judge. Um, he is just. He is righteous. And there will be judgment on all sin, all wickedness, everything. And no one, no one, not one will slip through the cracks. Um, Point number one, there will be judgment. By the way, before we go to point number two, let me just make this resoundingly clear. That's still true. There will be judgment. God is still perfect, still holy, still righteous, still just. His jurisdiction still knows no boundaries. He's still got all of creation. That's all his. That's still true. Hide and seek with God, still a very bad idea. We can think that we can kind of withdraw and, and um, when things are going bad, maybe you don't come to church because you don't want to be, you know. It's a bad idea because where can you go? He is there. He is present. Scripture makes it so clear. There will be judgment. And Amos is so relatable because just like the people of God in Amos, I think that our impulse can be, our reaction to this can be just like theirs. It's a, nah, we're good. 
We're good, right? I mean, we'll be all right. We have time. We'll get to that stuff later. Church, that's the, re- the exact response of the people in Israel in the time of Amos. And how did that go? It did not go well. The question is, will we learn? Will you learn? There will be judgment. Okay, part one, point number one, there will be judgment. Let's move to point number two. And to see this, I want to continue in our text, seven through 10. Seven through 10. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. Verse 9, for behold, I will command... Shake the house of Israel among all the nation as one shakes with a, a, a sheave, and no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall never overtake us or meet us. In other words, now nah, we're fine. Point number one is there will be judgment. Point number two, church. Again, he's repeating himself because we've seen this before. There will be a remnant. There will be judgment. Point number two, there will be a remnant. Look at this language again, verse eight. He, he's talking about the eyes being on the sinful kingdom, destroying it from the surface of the ground. But then at the end of verse eight, do you see what he says? Except, praise God for that word, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. It points back to what Amos has said in other places in his letter when, for example, in Amos 5, I think my favorite part that he says this. In Amos 5, he says, seek good, not evil, that you may live. You remember that? He says, hate evil, love good, establish justice at the gate. And in verse 15 of of chapter 5, he says, it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Church, there is a remnant left, a remnant that seeks the Lord and lives. God, God's word says, I, God says, I will destroy it all, except, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, he says in verse 8. So the question is, where is God stopping? What's left when, when the house of Jacob isn't utterly destroyed? What is left? Well, the answer is the remnant is left. Those who seek the Lord and live, they're left. Um, in fact, I love this imagery. It's really powerful. Look at verse 9. I'm assuming not many of you have like sifted grain recently. Um, but this, maybe you have. I don't, I don't know you. But listen, um, this is really powerful imagery. Listen to this. Um, For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel. Among all the nations, as one shakes with a sheave, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. This is shift, uh, sifting language. And so you, sifting is used in grain, um, with grain, among other things. The idea is, is that you take the grain, you put it in, and you shake the grain in a, in a sheave. And what would happen is the good stuff would fall through and would be collected 
while all the bad stuff, it would separate it from the bad stuff, and the bad stuff would be caught. It would not fall through. And they would take all that bad stuff, and they would discard it, throw it away. Um, you know, things like husk and stalks and pebbles. What would happen is it would be trapped in this thing, this sheave. It would be trapped and discarded and thrown away. So here's the powerful image that we see here. Think about this. In light of that image, Israel is being shaken. And the injustice and the wickedness and the, all of it, the sin, the ones whom Amos has been just calling out of the course of these last several chapters, they're being shaken. They're being separated like pebbles from grain. And the imagery here is that they are the pebbles that are being caught. And God's word says, not one pebble. You see that? Not one pebble, not one is going to fall through. Not one. Not one is going to escape. The sifting, not one. It's the remnant being separated from the pebbles. There will be a judgment and there will be a remnant that is separated from the pebbles. This was true then and church today it is true for us. In the midst of a fallen world, in the midst uh, we find ourselves in a culture where because of our, our faith and obedience to God's word, we find ourselves often paying a social price because of this. In other words, standing under this is, could be costly. And in the midst of that, we need to remember there will be a judgment, but also there will be a remnant. As Amos 5 says, there will be those in the midst of this culture who seek the Lord and live. There will be those in this culture who hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. There will be a remnant who knows that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious. This call is just as applicable today as it has ever been, church. There will be a judgment, and by the grace of God, there will be a remnant. And this gets us to the final part, point number three. And for this, I want to finish it out in verses 11 through 15. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. That's awesome, by the way. Verse 13. Sorry, I get distracted. Um, 13. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them. 
says the Lord your God. Point number one, there, there will be, there is judgment. Point number two, there is a remnant. Point number three, there is restoration. And I love, I love, I love, I love this conclusion. Because what Amos does here is he ends, not in destruction, but in restoration. It's a message of hope and restoration. And what I love is this is not unique to even Amos. You see Hosea do this. You see Micah do this. You see Isaiah do this, where there's this judgment. And then right at the end, it's followed with this salvation and hope. There's destruction followed by restoration. It's exactly what we see in our text. Exactly what we see. Verse 11 says that God is going to raise up the booth of David. Raise it up. Repair its fallen breaches, right? And, and rebuild it. It's the days of old. This is referring back to the Davidic reign. This is referring back to David's rule when David ruled over Israel as a man after God's own heart. He, in other words, it's looking back to those good old days when they used to follow after the ways of God. Not perfectly. Um, you read about David's life, you know it wasn't perfect. But the kingdom had moved away from God since then. The kings had become corrupt. They chased after other gods, abandoned the ways of God, the law of God. And what he's saying here is God is saying, I will raise back up David's reign. It points directly to Jesus Christ, the son of David, the Messiah, the coming king. And this king will call, I love this. It says the king will, it will call the nations to himself. So the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, is the king of the nations, the king of creation. This points directly to Christ and directly to the nations. And as we're about to see, this is really big. And as we looked at this text, especially 13, 14, and 15, the text also points to a coming kingdom. You see that? It paints this picture of wine and, and, and grapes and cities and, and, and all of this wonderful prosperity in the Lord points to this, this incredible picture of a coming kingdom, of restoration, of wholeness, and of shalom. And for the people of Israel here, as they hear these words, their eyes are lifted up. Yes, judgment. Yes, there is a remnant, but their eyes are lifted up to the restoration that will come with a new king and a new kingdom. New king and a new kingdom. And this is so important here. As a church, we, um, we need, I say need and I mean the word need, we need to find ourselves in Amos. What I mean by this is because the New Testament puts you in the conclusion of Amos. I want to invite you. You don't have to, but I want to invite you. Turn with me to Acts 15. Acts 15. Luke writes Acts, and it's meant to be kind of a, if you think of the Gospels, um, you know, giving this historical account of the ministry of Christ. Well, Acts is meant to be this historical account of how the church was established and spread in the first century. It's meant to be this carryover from the gospel to show how the ministry of Jesus carries on after his death and resurrection to the ministry of his church. And in Acts, you find very quickly that the church, the early church, faces many, many challenges. 
And uh, Acts 15 drops us in, by the way, to one of those challenges. And we get to a heated debate here in Acts 15. Um, It's a big one. And let me tell you, it all comes down to one question. You ready for the one question that, uh, that Acts 15 kind of boils down to? What do we do with these Gentiles? The early church is debating about what to do with all these Gentiles. Do we make them kind of take on our Jewish customs? What about, you know, the, the ceremonial laws? Um, what about bacon? They like bacon. We don't let them, but they're eating it anyway. What do we do? Right? What do, we do? what do we do with the dietary laws? And this question was huge, huge. It was a big deal. It's a big deal for us, by the way. Not just for those who like bacon, for a lot of reasons. It's a big deal. Um, but the debate was re- just robust. I kind of wish I could have been a fly on the wall for things like this. this is, what a huge moment this was. But in Acts 15, we see Peter standing up in verse 7. He makes a statement. And he says, brothers, I know that in the early days, God made a choice among you and that by my mouth and the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Praise God for that statement. Praise God for that glorious truth. He goes on and he says, Now therefore, why are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke on their neck or on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Praise God. It's kind of a mic drop moment. They didn't have microphones back then, but this was that moment. Because if you look right after, the assembly falls silent. My job, right? After that, in that silence, Paul and Barnabas step up. They start telling the stories of the signs and the wonders that God is doing among them um, and what they've done among the Gentiles. Peter gives his testimony. Paul and Barnabas give their testimony. And then James brings it home. In this text, in verse 13, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles and to take them from a people for his name. And with his words, the prophets agree, just as it is written. Listen to how James now is going to take us, grab us, and place us in the conclusion of Amos He jumps right into Amos. Listen to what James says. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Church, does that sound a little familiar? James quotes Amos. And he says, look, God has told us about these days already, these last days, that there will be restoration. Days when the Gentiles will be, the nations will be drawn to Christ. The days when people like me will come to faith in Christ. The son of David, the Lord, the king, the savior, 
These are the days Amos spoke about. In other words, church, you and I are in the days that Amos speaks about in chapter 9. Let me make this more clear. You and I are the people that Amos speaks about in Amos chapter 9. This is a huge point here. For you, for me, this is a big point. It has everything to do with you and I today. The restoration that God is speaking about here is found in the king and the kingdom. In Christ, it's found in the king and the kingdom that have come and that are coming. In other words, listen, our hope of restoration is this today, right now. Our hope is in the king that has come and is coming. And in the kingdom that has come and that is coming. That is our hope. This is something that theologians have called, it's a frustrating title, the already not yet. How circular is that? That's crazy, right? That we get away with a term like this, but already, but not yet. Our hope of restoration, though, is in the already, not yet. Just as the tables we came to, the already, but not yet. Our hope is in the already, not yet. And I want to start with the already, because right now we look back on the fact that Jesus Christ came. Roughly 700 years after the ministry of Amos. Jesus comes. The word becomes flesh. And, and, oh, he would be nothing like they were expecting. He didn't come in royal purple robes. But a baby crying in a manger. He didn't come with a powerful army of soldiers or political power, but a born of a virgin in a small town. The same small town that Amos was a suburb of. More than that, he didn't come to conquer in the way that they were thinking. That he would come and just stomp on the enemies. Are you an enemy of the people? Crush them. Crush Rome. Bring them down. Like, he didn't come like that. He didn't even lead in one epic battle. Like, not even one. He will, but he didn't. Here. In fact, he did the opposite. He gave himself over to Rome to be falsely accused, mocked, beaten, arrested, crucified. The son of David. Son of God, Messiah, the Christ, the King, came and our King gave himself for us to accomplish the work, all of it. Defeat death, defeat sin, raised from the dead. Our King came. And when our King came, I want to highlight one thing that he said. Just one. In Luke 17, in Luke 17, verse 20, Pharisees are doing what they do and grilling Jesus and trying to trip him up. And, and um, Jesus, they're asking about the kingdom of God and Jesus responds. He says, the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, there. Listen to what he says. Jesus says this in Luke 17. For behold, 
the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What is Jesus saying here? Very clearly, very directly, Jesus is looking them in the eyes and saying, the king and the kingdom are here. They're in your midst. We are about to celebrate Advent. I love Advent. Oh, I love Advent. Christmas is coming. It's actually somewhat cold. It's going to get hot again before Christmas, but it makes me feel good. Um, What are we celebrating? Well, one of the things that we celebrate in Advent and Christmas is the already. The fact that we look back on our God, our King, who came. The already. We look back on the kingdom of God that is here in our midst. We look to this. Our hope is in the one who came. And at the same time, at the same time, it's not just in the already. But our hope is also in the not yet. As we look at Amos, there is a description in Amos, in the final verses, of a kingdom that doesn't seem to have fully happened yet. We see a description, if you want to fast forward to the end, to Revelation, of a kingdom that doesn't seem to have happened yet. We um, ultimately, let's just fast forward all the way to the end, Revelation 21. We see a kingdom that has certainly not happened yet. When God dwells with us in sin and pain and death are no more in Revelation 21. Christ is on his throne making all things new, ruling in perfection. Church, we long for, we look forward to that day. This is the not yet part of our hope. That one day, there will be no more tears. Would you take that in? There will be no more sickness. Cancer is horrible. And one day, it will be done. There will be no more parents who mourn the loss of their kids. There will be no more bodies breaking down as we get old. There will be no more death. There will be no more suffering, no more sin, no more injustice, no more wickedness, no more struggle, no more war, no more famine. None of it. No more struggle even. We look forward to the day when the kingdom of God will come. And the king will return and he will rule and he will reign. That's the not yet. We look forward to that day. All right, we're about to celebrate Advent again. We talked about part of the things that we celebrate in Advent being the already that he came, the baby in the manger, the first coming of our king, the kingdom. But we not only look at that, when, as we step into Advent, we step into this moment where we get to look forward to the not yet, to what, when Christ will return, when the king comes again, and with him his perfect reign and rule his kingdom. What I'm trying to say, church, is Amos 9 is the perfect setup for Advent because we're right there. For the people of Israel and Amos, their, rest, their hope was in the restoration 
And it was in Advent. It was in this expectation of the coming of the Messiah, the King, the kingdom through Christ. Their hope was in restoration, was for restoration. And in the same way, church, for us today, right now, as his church, our hope for restoration is in Advent. The coming of the King and the kingdom. We, our hope is in the fact, the, the already but not yet, the fact that our king came and the kingdom of God is here and in the king that is coming again and the kingdom that will come. It brings us to the three points again. I want to bring it all together. There will be judgment, point number one. And Christ is the righteous judge. We can't hide None of us can hide. He will bring all things into account because he is perfect and righteous, the judge. And with that, point number two, there will be a remnant. And Christ is the savior. Our call in this moment, your call, is to be his remnant. To stand on the word of Christ as, as Amos says, to seek the Lord and to live, that's your call as the remnant. And there's one day, um, I'm reminded of the text that says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Our call is today, as the remnant, is to call on the name of the Lord every day, every moment. Will you, will we be his remnant and scripture tells us again that for all who are, that we will be saved because Christ is our savior. So there will be judgment and Christ is the righteous judge. There will be a remnant and Christ is our good savior. And lastly, we look forward to the hope of restoration as the remnant in Christ. We look back on the fact he came and we look forward to that day when he will come again. Christ is our hope. There will be, there will be restoration. And Christ is our living, living hope. I hope you're ready for Advent. I'll tell you, I, I wasn't until two things. The weather, but more than that, man, Amos 9. Just, oh. Well, we're going to celebrate this all the more. So I hope you're ready for that.